you know, I, I think the problem with viewing the canon as central and seeing these women as trying to get into it perpetuates the, the the sort of misogyny we have in the way we approach all of this. Because while you're saying, oh, here, oh, here's Beach and here's Ruth Covered Seeger, you know, I there's a, a pen women's chapter in Knoxville, Tennessee, who over the course of 20 years does pieces by 70 women composers. What is music history? This seems like a pretty straightforward question. If you've ever taken a music history class, you've probably learned about great musicians like Franz Schubert and Guillaume Dufay and Duke Ellington and their lives and their music. But the question is actually a little bit more complicated. For decades now, musicologists have continually debated what music history is. Is it the history of music, as in the lives and works of great composers? Or is it history through music? What music can tell us about wars and revolutions, the role of music in shaping major historical events? Or is it not about those big composers and big historical events at all? What if music history is a history of how music is consumed and what it has meant, how everyday people listen to and make music in everyday life? There's no one answer, really. Musicologists treat musical history in different ways in classrooms, textbooks, articles, monographs. I teach a different kind of music history to my music appreciation class than I do to music majors, than I do when I give a conference paper, than I do in a book or a journal article. For major institutions like symphony orchestras, though, there is a clear answer. They are focused on performing the great works of the past, and so they care a lot more about Schubert than they do about, say, the Metternich era of the Austrian Empire, or about amateur musicians who played in their parlors in the 19th century. And so, when we make necessary calls for symphony orchestras to diversify their repertoire, to consider programming not just Schubert, but also Clara Wieck Schumann and Amy Beach, we are asking them to elevate women composers to the same status that men have held in the canon for centuries. But again, that's not the only version of music history. Adding a couple more women to our collection of European greats reveals a fuller picture of 19th century music, but the picture is still not nearly complete. Because there were a lot of women making music in the 19th century who never wrote symphonies or even sonatas, many of them instead dedicated significant time and thought to doing something that we not only don't hear in our concert halls, we also don't even learn about in our classrooms, reading poetry aloud, accompanied by music. This was a practice totally unknown to me until I encountered Marion Wilson Kimber's fascinating 2015 book, The Elocutionists, Women, Music, and the Spoken Word. I'm Will Robin, your host for Sound Expertise. When I started this podcast, I knew I wanted to talk to Marion, a professor at the University of Iowa School of Music, about elocution and her rediscovery of this fascinating and important chapter in the history of music. Here is our conversation. So you have this really fascinating book from a few years ago called The Elocutionists, and I suspect that some of our listeners won't necessarily know actually what this term elocution is. I'm not even sure if I knew what it was before I started reading or hearing about your work. Can you explain what is elocution? 
Elocution is, in the simplest form, just the art of speaking. And mm. it was something people were trained in. You know, if you if you were male, you would learn to speak in order to be a lawyer or a politician or a preacher. And it enabled you to speak correctly and pronounce things correctly and project in the era right. before microphones. Um, but women were also trained in elocution as well because they were supposed to be able to read to their families and help educate their children. So the, the oral um, was a big part of 19th century life. You have to think there's no, there's no screen time. So people mm. are reading to each other and listening to each other. So speaking is very important. And so in the context of your research, what does that mean? Who are the elocutionists of your book? Because it's not just people learning to read, right? It's allowed. <laughs> right. It's, it's reading aloud with this kind of musical component. Yeah. So I, I became interested in elocution because I was interested in the combination of music and speech and mm. how much speech occurred in 19th century concerts. You know, we think when we go to a concert now, we don't expect somebody to stand up between movements of the symphony and read a poem. Right. But, uh, that was not un that uncommon in the 19th century. So I was mostly interested in how much speech took place in in public performance. And I was also interested in how people's voices sounded because a lot of the reviews I read of particularly of actors and actresses talked about how musical their speech was. Hmm. So I was interested in how they were trained. And then I discovered also that people performed with music, spoken word to, to right. music. So, um, I, I, I was interested in that as well. And, and the thing about the late 19th century is there were lots and lots of pieces that were written during this period for p like piano and speaker or mm -hmm. even orchestra and speaker. And I was initially very interested in those. And then I would go to the press literature or the reviews and I couldn't find people really performing them as much as I wanted to. And I, I kept ignoring, um, the pieces that people said they were doing with music and because what what turns out is people were not doing these notated pieces which are long and complicated and require a lot of rehearsal what people were doing was getting their friend the pianist to play a, a popular song behind their poem or or um you know if if a poem says refers to a a song or a hymn, they would get their friend to play that. So there was a much more informal practice that I tried as a musicologist trained in notation, tried desperately to ignore. Um, and once I stopped ignoring it, lots of things made a lot more sense to me about, about how music and speech interacted in the 19th century. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it seems like we, we all have this tendency to gravitate towards like the musical work and, that means, you know, looking for what the piece is called. And then you discover, I guess you discover basically like that's not these random pieces of speech and music are actually not nearly as interesting as what people actually do. Like the, the doing of music versus the kind of like score of music. Um, and so what, what was that practice like? How did that develop this idea of speaking poetry accompanied by someone playing the piano in some capacity? So it, it became known as accompanied recitation. Mm. Um, and since, since elocutionists were often on programs with pianists or singers, uh, they, 
you know, it was very easy to do. Um, and the, and there were particular poems that became standardized poems that you did with music. So, and, and these were poems that that had music in them, right? They, somebody's singing in the poem or somebody's referring to the song their mother used to sing to them. Um, so it was just natural to, to do this, to put, put the music in and, and give a more sort of, uh, you're in the moment experience with, with the music. And, and so you would see this very often that a particular performer does this piece with music and I would mm. see it over and over again. And I, the, the problem is then figuring out, okay, well, what music did they do it with? And sometimes it's obvious and other times it's not, or it was flexible. So there was a piece called uh, a poem called music on the Rappahannock, which is a poem about union and, Southern troops standing across the Rapp Rappahannock River and playing music to each other, and at the they're they're sort of competitively, and at the end somebody the trumpeter plays "Home Sweet Home," and of course everybody you know then weeps and we the the soldiers are brought together by music. Well, this sounds like it ought to be an easy thing to figure out, right? But there are five different poems that could fit this story two of oh, which I know got done. Um, and people did them with different music or they did them in different arrangements. I know one lady who performed with the string orchestra. Um, and I, I know of one uh, recitation book where the lady wrote down what she performed and the poem is different than what is in other published sources. So it's really more an oral tradition that you're tracing, mm. which is which is um, was hard for me at first because I'm a kind of old fashioned musicologist who, you know, looks at the score and the composer's letters and, but there's no composer and there's no score. So. Yeah. I mean, you say these are elocutionists and your book's called the elocutionists. So who were some of these specific women who were engaged in this practice? Tell me about a, a couple of the more interesting examples of, of elocutionists. Well, there are lots and lots of them. Mm. Um, and, and it's often hard to find out about them because they would go to elocution school. There was usually an elocution school in every ma major American city, at least oh, one. Wow. Or they could study with privately in somebody's home, like you do piano lessons now. Um, so a lot of women went off to elocution school and did this for a few years and then got married or went on to other things and just sort of disappeared. Um, though many women did have real careers. There was a, a woman in from Cincinnati named, well, her, her original name was Jenny Mannheimer. She came from a, a German Jewish family and she used to perform for both Jewish groups and um, sometimes performed in German for German speaking groups in Cincinnati. And then around World War and had an elocution school in Cincinnati that she ran with her sister. And they even, um, at, at their peak, I think they had enough women at their school that they opened a women's dormitory. Oh, wow. Um, she, she eventually moved to New York and she changed her name to Jane Manor around World War I. I suspect it was the anti-German sentiment at the time that caused hmm. her to do this and had a studio in New York and performed. Um, she, she, she often gave entire plays 
she gave different kind of repertoire for different groups. She'd give, uh, for Jewish groups, she'd give appropriate, um, culturally sort of appropriate and interesting material for the Jewish groups. And for mm-hmm. non-Jewish groups, she would, she would give other kinds of texts. Um, but she had a, had a speech studio and taught out of the home in New York um, and had students and published a couple of books of, of poetry, you know, anthologies of poetry. But she also performed with music and she performed with pianists. She performed with uh, a couple women uh, performed with player piano at the height of player, people having player pianos. Um, so she, you know, she had a 40-ish year career um, and often, often these women performed for women's groups because women's clubs were very, very common and the, and right. the more wealthy ones could hire people to come in and, and perform for them um, or, or salon settings for, for the wealthy sometimes. Um, yeah. I want to come back to the women's clubs because I think that's a really interesting context, but Tell me a little bit about kind of the social context for these women. What drove them to school and elocution? What drove them potentially to a kind of career in elocution? How is this related to kind of ideas of domesticity? What was proper for an American woman to be doing in in the mid-19th century? Well, you don't want your daughter to become an actress because... (laughs) actress is an immoral woman and to be on the stage um, suggests um, that your sexuality is maybe a little more free than it ought to be. So, so there is this sense about elocution that it is respectable because it is something that you could do in the home and that it's literary, that you're transmitting the voice of great literature and that if you read the proceedings of the Elocutionist Association, they're always talking about how this is what they do. They transmit great literature and, and all elocution schools taught Shakespeare. Now, in reality, when people went out to perform, they had to entertain their audiences. So, you know, they gave selections like Aunt Doleful's Visit, which is about a relative who complains all the time. And it's really comedy. <laughs> um, or they gave... Um, very sentimental poetry. Uh, there was lots and lots of very popular sentimental poetry. And when I talked to English teachers about these poems, they've never heard of them, you know, but, but it was very commonly known um, sort of standard repertoire for, for elocutionists. So, so women who went into elocution um, Sometimes it was just some of the elocution schools were considered to be like ladies finishing schools. And they even said in their catalogs, well, we're not really training you for the stage. We know you're just going to read to your friends and do this well. And there were people like that. Um, There were people who went to elocution school who did aspire to go on the stage and occasionally people did and became actresses. Um, But there's this place in between where you can teach Often these women taught, they taught in women's colleges, they taught in their own homes, they taught in elocution schools. Um, they toured They toured church. Churches had culture series, lecture series. They would tour, church, tour churches and YMCAs. They would tour the Chautauqua circuit, which is mm. this tent circuit that went through 
um, largely the Midwest, but elsewhere in America as well, um, to rural audiences that didn't get as much culture with a capital C, and they would they would tour those into the 20s. How, how did they manage to do all this touring while somehow distinguishing themselves from theater? I mean, it, because obviously theater has this kind of morally dubious connotation. It's, you know, there's like, you know, theatrical actresses are seen as prostitutes in some way in the 19th century. So like, they're obviously saying like, we are not doing theater, but like, what is that? Does that actually mean anything in practice? It, it, it means you're really, really careful in your marketing and you never, ever call yourself an actress. There are mm. all sorts of contortions that um, the performers went through to not call themselves, you know, you could be a character impersonator, which is not an actress. Um, so so it's it was very tricky. Um, and, and, you know, even on Chautauqua, there were people who did wear costumes and they're, they're very, they're negotiating very carefully with conservative rural audiences who are anti-theater. And, 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 you know, one reason elocution went away is because theater became more socially acceptable. for women. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, so almost... Uh, it's kind of like this moment where women are, let's say, performing their piano, the piano at home, but if they were to perform on a concert stage, it would be seen as kind of questionable. This is seen as a both kind of in the realm of theater, but also still proper in some sense. Yes. Um, it's, it's literary, it's cultural, it's related to the domestic sphere. Yeah. And, 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 you know, there are lots of women operating in a kind of semi-amateur world where they're teaching at home, um, they might have a family, they're appearing at church, they're appearing for women's clubs. If they're in a big city, they may be appearing for a lot of women's clubs and getting paid, but, but then they're reported on in the society pages. So, so there's a kind of um, under-the-radar professionalism going on. And, and it, you know, it's problematic historically because when you go back to look for these people, they look like society ladies and when they're actually professional performers, some of them, but, but it's a, it's a way to do this. It's a way to be a performer as a woman in a socially acceptable way. Hmm. And so, I mean, it's striking that when we think of kind of like, I don't know, training in sound or whatever in the 19th century, we're talking about like music conservatories, but this is also a different way of, I mean, what what did the training look like? How were they engaging with like, I mean, in your book, you talk about notation systems and stuff, but they're not notation systems for music per se, they're notation systems for, for speaking. So I, you know, some of this is just lost because, mm-hmm. um, I, so much obviously took place in oral transmission when you went to a teacher and what the teacher taught you to do. But clearly uh, in the late 19th century, the kind of speaking that was going on was a much more pitched speaking style. And it's, there's lots of, you know, there's lots of just how to pronounce it in the books and, and how to emphasize you know how to get the right accent on the right syllable, right? Um, and 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 you also suspect that this is also a period of heavy immigration in America, and you suspect that some people are are improving their English through mm. elocution lessons as well. Um, but there's a there was clearly a highly pitched style because so many times people in the elocution books are trying to notate a pitched style, and you know. 
speech has a lot of pitch and uh, and and pitch that moves in a much more flexible way than music does. So the elocutions were all very um, proud to say speech is harder than singing because singing, hmm. you just hit those notes and they're right there for you. And when you speak, you have to interpret it yourself and you have to make the, you know, you have to generate the pitch yourself in a kind of trained yet improvisatory way. So um, one of the things that took me a while to to sort of recognize when I was researching this, because I would go and listen to modern recordings of melodramatic pieces. And there's some wonderful recordings, you know, there's um, Patrick Stewart uh, reciting Enoch Arden by Tennyson with accompaniment by Strauss played by Emmanuel Lax. And there are these wonderful Mm. recordings. And and every time I'd listen to them, I think, but something is just weird. And I just don't, I'm not enjoying this. Why isn't this working? And I, I think it's because we've lost the stylized pitched performance practices of the earlier period. And, you know, you hear, you hear this every now and then on early sound recordings. I have a, a recording from 1913 of Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven, where the, the speaker is almost singing. There's so much pitch. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon that is dreaming. And the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out of that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. And he he word paints, you know, he says, shall be lifted. Shall be lifted. You know, or or you know, a, a speaker could say, and they laid him in the grave. <laughs> so so we know there's there was word painting. We know people made whistling and bugle sounds. Um and baby crying sounds. I mean, we knew, know they also imitated natural sounds. And some of this, boy, I would love to have some sound recordings of it. I don't, there's, but, but I think we've lost some of that. And when you hear the early sound recordings, first you think, oh my gosh, this is so weird and so overdone and so melodramatic. And then if you go back to hearing modern recitation of poetry you know vincent price reading the raven now sounds really boring to me Hmm. so um yeah and you've also been performing this yourself you've taken this up elocution i've seen you do a fantastic (laughs) recital at, at an ams conference so like how did you get to doing it and and what did you kind of learn in the process of actually becoming an elocutionist yeah so i'm i've been performing the, the pieces that come out of this movement, which are early 20th century pieces by women composers, because this is a world where it's predominantly women, not entirely, but predominantly women. Um, there are women composers in the early 20th century who write pieces for spoken word and piano. And that's sort of where the book ends. And after I finished the book, I thought, you know, I, these are really funny. They're, they're often very comic. They're not the sort of overdone Victorian, overly emotional pieces of the late 19th century. They're more modern and they're, they're, I thought these pieces are still funny. 
So I had a, a residency at the Oberman Humanities Center at the University of Iowa, and it came with a little bit of money. And I wrote the grant to hire the pianist. Um, and I've been working with a wonderful pianist named Natalie Landowski. We are, we are a group, we're called Red Vespa now. And so I, I hired Natalie and said, this is an experiment. We're gonna see if we can make these pieces work and we will start performing. And audiences loved them in particularly the audiences that love the pieces are audiences of women. Um, so we often perform for women's clubs and these are the kinds of audiences that these pieces were intended for. So they still work. Um, I don't perform in a highly pitched style like I described. I try to perform in a modern style. And I have heard some of the recordings of the composers performing these pieces, particularly mm. Frida Pikey, who lived in LA. I've heard her recordings. And I don't recite quite like her. Um, Cause I have to, I have to sell the pieces to a modern audience. And so my style is a little, little more contemporary. In fact, uh, um, I sent, when I first started performing, I sent, I made some videos and I sent the links to the elderly daughters of one of the composers. And one of the daughters said, this is wonderful you're performing, but don't you think you should get some, some training, some elocution training? <laughs> and where does one go about getting elocution training? <laughs> so, which says to me, I am not performing in a historically uh -huh. authentic style, but, but it's, it's, it's been a lot of fun to bring these pieces back to life and to have audiences laugh. Um, Cause they're, they're pieces that, make fun of men and they make fun of romance and they make fun of marriage and women, women like these pieces. What, how did those, that body of work kind of emerge these pieces by women composers with poetry attached to them? This was a kind of uh, context of the, um, of women's clubs in this period or. Yes. Women's clubs is a, is one place that, that these pieces would be performed because there's a whole network of women's clubs across America. Uh, and um, the two women who uh, whose works I perform the most, Phyllis Fergus and Frida Pikey. Fergus lived in Chicago, and you know she could she could practically go perform at a club every every week. It, you know, she she was there were so many clubs in Chicago, and uh, Frida Pikey worked in the Los Angeles area, and there were lots of clubs. And she she also performed for mixed gender clubs, so church groups and businessmen's associations and um, so any kind of civic civic group. So there's a, there's a world where these women can perform. Tell me a little bit about the Phyllis Fergus concerts at the White House for Eleanor Roosevelt, right? How did that, I mean, that's kind of a, this crazy moment and <laughs> they performed Amy Beach's music at the White House in this period too. How did yes. those, how did that unfold? There was this uh, so, national, so, national so Phyllis Fergus's daughters lent me her scrapbooks. And oh, wow. um, in fact, they went into the one of the daughter's basement and brought out literally laundry baskets of her music for me and her scrapbooks and uh, sent me home. They had just met me. They sent me home with their mom's scrapbooks. And, it's an amazing uh, research opportunity. Yes, I'm so grateful to both of them. And so one of the scrapbooks was about 
um, a series of concerts in Chicago, a concert in Chicago of all women composers. And there was also a flyer for a series of concerts honoring Amy Beach in Washington, D.C., ending with a concert in the White House. Mm. And Fergus was a member of the National League of American Pen Women. She was at one point the president, and that was an organization. It was a professional organization. It was not just a sort of local amateur women's clubs. It was a professional organization for writers and artists and composers that were women. It was started because the women couldn't get into the press club in Washington, D.C., the women journalists and they founded their own group. And so there, there was a national organization of, of women and chapters all over the country. And for, they would meet in DC in the spring. That was their annual biannual meeting. And Fergus, they used to go to tea at the White House as you know, part of the millions of people who go through the White House in various contexts over the years. Um, and Fergus decided they should have a concert and sort of badgered Eleanor Roosevelt and her secretary. <laughs> they agreed to it. Um, and so they had about a 20 minute, 30 minute, 20 to 30 minute concert in the East Room, um, two years in the thirties. And then Eleanor Roosevelt decided that it, that there were too many people and they all had to stand for the 30 minutes. And Eleanor Roosevelt thought that that was not okay, that the people were too uncomfortable standing. <laughs> And that was the end. <laughs> that was the end of the women composers' concerts at the White House, but um, but it was in honor of Beach. Beach was a pen woman. I see. And, Interesting. And so and and was getting to be elderly by the thirties, and so they honored her. And so they uh, always the culminating act was Beach playing her own works. You know, it's it's striking to me how all of these stories have very little to do with what we typically learn about 19th century music. I mean, even 19th century American music. And, you know, when we talk about musical life in this period, we're often talking about these kind of high art institutions, the Metropolitan Opera, the New York Philharmonic, and the ways that the European canon kind of comes into circulation in the United States. So I'm wondering, like, how does this, and I know you've been kind of tweeting a little bit about this too, the ways in which, like, what is being performed at these women's clubs in the 19th century kind of complicates our notion of how the canon develops or doesn't develop or kind of moves from Europe to the United States. What does all of this kind of tell us about these kind of canonic discourses in this period? That's a big question. Yeah, well, it is. And it's certainly something I've thought about a lot since I've done this work because I feel like I fell into an alternative universe, (laughs) started to work on elocution and you know, as I said, I, I resisted it, you know, at first, and then I just went with it. And, you know, the alternative universe I have fallen into is more female, less urban, um, you know, less about New York and Boston and these cultural centers. Um, though, it, though it is more about Chicago, which was where a lot of the Chautauqua acts came out from. Um, so... It's it's more about really what went on regularly all over America in not New York and Boston, and it seems to me that the the and it, and it is a period the late nineteenth century and the early twentieth century are a period where people really are very pro classical music and they're very um, 
they're all about improving themselves and about making high art. And But what they think high art is is not necessarily what we think high art is. So um, if you're in a woman's club with a pianist and a singer and a violinist, and if you're lucky, a cellist and a reciter, uh, you're not doing Beethoven's string quartets or even really Beethoven's sonatas because they're difficult and long and you've got an hour over lunch on Wednesdays once a month. So it seems to me there's a body of repertoire that was the, the, the sort of standard repertoire for America that we would now call middle brow. I'm not I sure see. they would have called it middle brow. Um, so character violin pieces, you know, the sorts of things that Fritz Kreisler played. Um, there's a huge song repertoire by women and by Americans and um, other people that seems to me to have been pretty standard in the early 20th century that we now have no knowledge of. And so so I I feel like because we're dealing with a few men in New York and Boston, that really limits our view of what the whole world is. And, mm-hmm. and I, you know, a plug for the digitization of newspapers. It's, it's an amazing thing to be able to see in the newspapers, really what people are really playing and singing with great frequency in a way that you couldn't 20 years ago. It's really interesting. And I mean, this also I'm very interested in when I was kind of reading up on you your own arc as a scholar because it seems striking that your dissertation is on Felix Mendelssohn music for piano and orchestra and then you move I guess towards Fanny Hensel and more towards feminist biography and then you move towards this kind of wider world that really goes away from composer studies entirely how do you kind of conceptualize that that shift in in your own work um yeah i mean it's a drift i guess along with our field but it's also very specific yeah um i have always been interested in gender issues though so my very first publication was actually about the way that mendelssohn's wife is portrayed in his biographies okay interesting and you know it's in an obscure little uh 19th century interdisciplinary journal um, so, so I have always been interested in, in gender issues. Um, and since I, I think my third job, I taught American music. Um, I had a series of, I had three one-year jobs. And in the third one, I got the American music course and, and kind of had a revelation. So that, that fits in there. And that's, that's a while back. Um, but, but I do think that that doing the work on the elocution book really did transform the way I see everything. Um, and, and, you know, and Mendelssohn is one of those people in those clubs, right? I mean, Mendelssohn's music is there. So, so it's not like, it's not like I have abandoned him. Um, and, and doing Midsummer Night's Dream with Mendelssohn's music as a solo act was a standard thing for, for elocutionists. And and in some sense, that's how, how I got here too. But I do joke now that, that I no longer, I no longer believe in the canon and I no longer believe in the work as a, as a, as a thing. You know, I, I mean, obviously I deal with the work, but, but I do think a lot about 
performance and performance practices. And, you know, also way my background is playing early music and playing gamba. So performance practice issues are, are, are maybe not immediately evident in my early scholarship, but it's certainly part of my training and my background to think about, about that and think about, but, but I, I take performance way more seriously than I used to um, because of this project and the mm -hmm. way that, that lots of performance can happen even in Western art music that we don't even see as a work or see as a performance. Right. I mean, it's, one thing that was interesting to me when I was reading this book and, and some of your other work is is how you see a project like this kind of tracking alongside some kind of feminist notion of music history where, you know, you kind of point out that women's musical clubs are primarily viewed as a kind of backdrop for the emergence of these kind of like iconoclastic figures like Ruth Crawford Seeger. And, you know, we've elevated figures like Ruth Crawford Seeger um, because to to grant women a similar kind of status in the canon as men. And so I'm wondering, like, how do you kind of, do you still see this kind of foregrounding of these individual great creators, even if they're male or female, versus an understanding of the, the larger kind of role of music in everyday life in these historical periods? Yeah, it's, I, hmm. I mean, I, I do think that this context can sometimes tell us about what's going on with these larger figures because, you know, Bartok is touring pro musica clubs in America and um, some other male composers are writing pieces that get done by women's choruses in, in and, and I mean, I've even found operettas for women's voices written that, that there's a whole sort of alternative market that can shape what sort of standard professional composers are doing. Um, at, at the same time, I think composers sometimes also recognize that because this is a woman's world, that it can hurt them. And um, someone has pointed out to me, um, one re a reviewer once pointed out to me that uh, Ruth Crawford Seeger deliberately stayed away from the women's club circuit. Um, because she wanted to be taken seriously in this sort of I the see. male world. So, um, so it, it's tricky because there are women who are very, very successful in this women's world. And mostly we haven't heard of them. You know, people have heard of Ruth Crawford Seeger. They probably haven't heard of Gina Branscombe. Beach, I think, manages to balance. You know, Beach is also part of this women's club's world while she also has uh, large-scale genres and and is accepted as sort of one of the boys. But that's a tricky place to be. I don't think there are a lot of women who are successful in that. Um, so, so I think, you know, I, I think the problem with viewing the canon as central and seeing these women as trying to get into it perpetuates the, the the sort of misogyny we have in the way we approach all of this because while you're saying oh here oh here's beach and here's Ruth covered seeker you know i there's a a pen women's chapter in knoxville tennessee who over the course of 20 years does pieces by 70 women composers they do a women composers concert every year they do 70 um and in iowa the women's clubs network, both the National Federation of Women's Clubs members and the General Federation of Women's Clubs members for 20 years 
promote Iowa composers all over the state and do, you know, there are over a hundred concerts of music by Iowa composers in Iowa. It's Iowa. It's rural. <laughs> um, and, and they're not just promoting women. They're mostly promoting men. But, but here's this network in the middle of nowhere. You know, it's Iowa, right? It's not New York or Boston. And, and they're promoting art music. So I think we should under, we, historically, we underestimate women at our peril of sort of really mm. missing what's going on. You know, I mean, early on, I was researching Phyllis Fergus, and I couldn't really figure out, is she, you know, is she a real composer or not a real composer? Because she's a woman, and she's playing these clubs, and it's in the society pages. And I said to her daughters, well, did she get paid? And they said, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, she did. Of course she got paid. Now, sometimes if she felt the club couldn't afford her, she'd donate the fee back because she was a well-off upper-class Chicago married to a steel broker. <laughs> it's so but, funny that you're saying, you know, was she a real composer? Did she get paid? Because, you know, we have all these famous composers, you know, like whatever, Charles Ives, where it's like he's a composer because he couldn't afford to make a career. Right, like, right, yeah. right, right. So, so... Um, you know, Phyllis Fergus, her output is not huge, but she helped support her mom on the royalties from it. So it can't have been nothing. And, you know, you've never heard of her, right? <laughs> um, nobody's ever heard of her before I did the work on her. And so I think, I suspect there are more Phyllis Ferguses out there. And it it's because our view of what a composer is, is so limited. Um, I mean, the, the one the one other thing I will say is when I was researching the book, I went to a lot of schools that had had elocution schools as part of them or, or started as elocution schools and, and are still extant as colleges. And one of the places I went was the New England Conservatory of Music, which, you know, we think is sort of a bastion of... Uh, Obviously, it was run by Chadwick, but he based it on European models, and it, it's this sort of place to study European art music in America. But it had an elocution school early on, Interesting. and it went away. But the other thing I discovered by looking at the early papers of the, net, of the NEC is that huge, huge numbers of the students of the early NEC were, in fact, women. So, you know, as we're talking about, you know, how European art music comes to America, women are a huge, huge force in that. And somebody had to give all those male composers their first piano lessons. So, so, so I, you know, I, I worked on Mendelssohn and I worked on Fanny Hensel. And there's, there's always this sort of, oh. I was, I was Fanny, about to ask about this, the Fanny Hensel. Only Fanny yeah. Hensel had, you know, at, and well, this idea, I mean, I think it's important to lay out for is is this kind of common biographical trope that, which I think we see a lot now, not even about Fanny Hensel, but just about women composers prior to, I don't know, 1990 or something, that they are suppressed, needing in need to be rescued, marginalized, unsung heroes who are only now being kind of kind of rediscovered. So so sorry. Now and now go ahead and tell us about why that's wrong. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I won't say it's entirely wrong. Sure, because, of course. Because a lot of work needs to be done on lots and lots and lots of historical figures. And I think, you know, in the 80s, 
there was lots of work being done. And then in musicology, we all decided we would work on gender instead. And people stopped sort of doing women's history. I mean, not everybody, but it became less fashionable in musicology to, to do a kind of traditional women's history. The thing is, if you work in the, in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, it's a really active and a fertile period. And, you know, Judith Dick said this a long time ago, but you can, you can pick up, you know, sort of books about early 20th century American music. Some of the sort of, you know, here's, here's American music and they're full of women. And so I think my question is, you know, what happened between a hundred years ago and now? And, there and that's are, the case with Fanny Hensel in a way too, right? Which is that she was not nearly as quote unquote suppressed during her lifetime as we often kind of portray her as. Yeah. So, so Fanny Hensel's son published her letters um, after her death. And, and of course he, he was very selective about what he published and he shaped them in certain kinds of ways to make her look socially respectable for the time. But her letters were widely circulated and you know, I often find when I'm looking at women's clubs programs, her name on it. Now, they, they don't have her scores. They're not performing her necessarily, but they know who she is. And she's written up a lot um, in, in various sources. Now, she's written up as Mendelssohn's sister. Sure. But she was certainly recognized as having musical talent and and as having been a composer. And, you know, the the story of rescue makes us the hero. We want to be the hero. And musicologists don't get to be heroes. So, you know, we found them in the dusty archives and we rescued them. And 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 yeah, it's great. I mean, and in some sense, I'm I'm doing that too. I mean, I've rescued these spoken word performances and I'm, you know, getting people to perform them now. So, so yes. But at the, if we if we tell that story over and over and over and over and over, we the women never get rescued. They're always being rescued, and they're never the default mode. Uh, you know, like one one of the great moments for me was after the book came out. Is Danielle Foster Lucier assigned it to her class at Ohio State, and I saw the syllabus. It was a it was an amazing class. I wanted to take her class, and. Um, not for my book, for all the rest of it. And when she, when you got to the part in the syllabus where she, where my book was, the, the 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 subject heading of the the class period was taking women seriously. You know, taking women seriously in what they are doing, as opposed to what they're not doing. That's our model of what they ought to be doing, which is getting the traditional training that men get and writing the pieces like men write and. Um, and this is not to say that I don't think, you know, I'm really happy with Amy Beach's Gaelic Symphony. That's a wonderful thing. And I'm really, really happy with Fanny Hensel's Dossier. I mean, when women write big, amazing pieces, that's a great thing. But I think we should also take seriously when they write little comic pieces that are spoken word and that made whole room, rooms full of women laugh. Um, that's important too. Well, I think that's a wonderful place to leave it. Thank you so much. This is really fascinating. I appreciate it. Thanks. Great fun.
Many thanks to Marian Wilson-Kimber for that great discussion. You'll definitely want to read her book, The Elocutionists, Women, Music, and the Spoken Word. As always, visit soundexpertise.org for links to Marian's writing and other show notes. You can follow me on Twitter at Seated Ovation and the work of my producer, D. Edward Davis, over on SoundCloud at Warm Silence. Next week, I'll be speaking with the scholar Timothy Taylor about music and capitalism. To close out today, let's listen to a bit of elocution. Marion Wilson Kimber, accompanied by pianist Natalie Landowski, performing Dame Fashion by Frida Pikey. Enjoy. Too fussy, it ought to be plain.